0: You're listening to Monocle on Saturday. First broadcast on the 26th of February 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and a very warm welcome to Monocle on Saturday with me, Emma Nelson, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in the heart of London. Coming up, we cross over to hear voices from Ukraine, where Kiev has seen fighting on the streets for the first time and thousands of people are now fleeing to safety. Charles Hecker joins me to chat through the day's front pages. Good morning, Charles. What few spotted among the headlines dominated simply by just one story?
1: Emma, it is a day of very heavy ink. Six column headlines, pictures from Ukraine across the front pages of newspapers all the way from Tokyo to Washington DC. Dramatic coverage of the day's events as troops approach Kiev.
0: Thank you. More from Charles a little later in the program. And we'll also hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck.
2: Imbibing too much rolling news can often make you feel as though you might lose your footing. But the response engendered in us by the invasion of Ukraine by a tyrant The attempt by Russia to trample over an independent nation's prized democracy, the squandering of life, the inability of the West to respond, is about much more than news anxiety.
0: That's all coming up right here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. So here is what we know so far about the situation in Ukraine. There has been heavy fighting in Kyiv overnight as Russian troops have attacked from multiple fronts in an apparent attempt to seize the capital. Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky has remained defiant throughout, vowing to defend his country, and the leaders of Poland, Lithuania and Germany are meeting in Berlin to discuss sanctions on Russia. Meanwhile, v- Russia has vetoed a draft UN Security Council resolution condemning Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. China abstained from the vote, which is a move Western countries are viewing as a win for showing Russia's increased international isolation. The United Arab Emirates and India also abstained from the vote. Well, those are the latest headlines on this, but let's hear straight away from Alia Chandra, who's editor-in-chief of Euromaidan Press in Kiev. Um, Alia, a very good morning to you. Um, I understand you are now no longer in Kiev and have taken the decision to leave. Is that right?
3: Yes, um, um, I and my family have evacuated to Lviv, which is a city in western Ukraine, which has been so much um, so far untouched by the fighting. Um, yeah, Unfortunately, we had to make the decision because um, because I'm probably in the hit list for Ukrainian activists and because I could not contribute actively in, in def- defense. So I decided that it's better to leave with the children and all. Um, yeah, but I'm. I just I'm seeing from reports that Kiev is holding up. Um, that uh, the Russians are suffering heavy casualties, um, as our defense minister has said. Uh, yesterday the number was something like two eight hundred, um, which is killed, wo- wounded, and missing. Uh, or, or captured, sorry, not missing, but captured, and today the number is 3,500. Um, and according to him, um, these are the heaviest casualties that Russia has ever sustained in the first days of a conflict. So apparently the Creek that they were hoping for did not materialize, and this is thanks to the United States. Um, resistance of Ukrainians on so many fronts. I'm so proud of my nation that are just fighting for their land, for their truth. Um, yeah, and it's really, it's absolutely surreal what is happening here. Just like two days ago, my thoughts were about music lessons for my daughter <laughs> and, and getting back like equipment that I sent to get fixed. And today we're refugees like the bare minimum of clothes. We left her home, we left her lives, everything. And there are so many people like us that are just leaving because of Russia's unprovoked, insane aggression. It's absolutely insane what they're saying. They're bombing kindergartens. They Over the last 24 hours, they have bombed one kindergarten and one um, boarding school and they are targeting hospitals they have targeted ambulances today a high-rise building in my country in my capital it was just blown away and the visual similarity to the 911 towers is just striking and um this is all happening because the the insane absolutely lunatical ideas of this insane leader (laughs) It's it's just I can't get my mind over it. <sighs>
0: um, tell us a little bit more about what it was like leaving Kiev.
3: Um, so there are many traffic jams. I thought that I would get we would get to Lviv in seven hours. Instead, it took all night. Um, uh, many traffic jams. There is little gas, um, uh, and there are very big lines. Um, to get gas on the on the highways, so if you run out of gas, it's really unsure. It's um, there is no certainty where you can get it next. We managed to find gas in a city, Rivne. Um We drove into it in the night, and it was totally um, black. All the residents turned their lights out. I guess, to not be targeted by um, aviation missiles of the Russians. Um, But we found a gas station that worked. They were only giving 20 liters of gas into one fuel tank, but we talked them into giving us more. And thankfully, because of that, we had enough fuel to get to leave. So what else is there? Like In the supermarkets along the way, people are stocking up on food. There is no bread. Um, That's... That's probably the only shortage that we found it's like no bread at all so like crackers and stuff people are buying that um otherwise than that i guess there there are checkpoints on the way our territorial defense has set up checkpoints so how they look is there are these big concrete blocks and they have like these bags of sand on top and they are like crisscrossed along the road so you have to like slow down and like make u-turns and they stop any suspicious cars and inspect them uh okay and not only territorial defense but the road police so um there's information coming in that there are saboteur groups working throughout the country that are leaving marks on buildings and uh, these marks they like glow ultraviolet in the dark and um, sometimes there are these marks, they're also like, they send radio signals, and this is for the Russian missiles to hit the high-rise buildings. So um, our, we listen to the radio the whole way, and there's like a radio marathon over all the radio stations, and they're reporting all the information as it comes in, and they're just appealing to all the residents to go inspect their roofs, go inspect their the territory around their buildings to cover up any strange marks because all these saboteurs, they love these marks for the Russian army. Um, and I've seen like photos of these like ultraviolet um, glow in the dark marks in the night because the missile strikes, they happen in the night and these marks, they glow in the dark when there's illuminated with this ultraviolet light. So residents are also um, urged to report any uh, purple lights to the SBU. And um, actually, Ukraine is quite united and weeding out these saboteurs. They just, the territorial defense, they patrol the streets, all the residents, they just report all suspicious activity to the police. And it also turned out today that the Russians, they're using an app, an app store. I don't quite remember how it's called, let me check. But this app, um, it's like the saboteurs, they're uploading photos of these marks they make Um, and it's like information for the Russian army. It is a full-front invasion, absolutely insane invasion. And it's just like the first soldiers, the first Russian soldiers that are captured, they're like telling a story that, oh, we didn't know where we are going. We thought we were going on training. But really, um, it's unlikely that this is the truth. They're probably just being told that they should tell this.
0: Um, um, what's going to happen to you next, Sally? I mean, do, do you fa- feel safe enough to stay in Lviv or are you now contemplating getting out of Ukraine completely?
3: Well, that will really develop, depend on the development of the situation because we have family in Germany and that can help take care of kids and things like this. But so far, Lviv appears to be pretty safe. I really want to stay in Ukraine for as long as I can and report from here. Um and do what I can for the defense of my country in the information space. Um, But so far, there was like this aviation, what do you call it, like the sirens were howling, I don't know how to say this in English. Um, So there was like a warning, an air bombing warning, but nothing happened. So, so far there were no, Lviv was one of the few cities that was not hit. (laughs) I don't know for what reason, but. So what happens in the night is that um, the Russians, they try to attack the airfields and military bases, but they also target the civilian infrastructure too. And this happens in the night. So each night people, they need to spend nights in shelters, underground bomb shelters. And um, for the last three days, it has been that a- around like three or four in the morning I mean, remember the first day when Putin attacked? It was five o'clock in the morning when he made his insane speech, and then like all this activity just started at the same time, all this invasion. And each night, like at three, four, five in the morning, there're missile strikes, and aviation. But our guys are fighting back. I'm seeing many, many um, photos of airplanes being shot down, and not only uh, helicopters being shot down, and they're not only transport. Aircraft There are also attack aircraft and this is a big deal because like they're Sioux Like planes that were thought to be invincible, but they're not We have like an ace um, Pilot that has shut down ten planes or so so far um, There are the paratroopers. No, it's you know At the first days there was like the sense of doom. Oh, they have more men. They're they're stronger than us. Maybe, maybe we will have to fall. But for instance, they're, they've they tried to capture this Hostomel airf- airfield near Kiev. They're advancing on Kiev. Their plan is to capture Kiev. But now another front. They're really f- um, fighting from the south also. Okay. So anyway, there's like this Hostomel airfield near Kiev, and the Russians captured it. And there was it's like you know there was, there was this sense of doom. Oh no, they're going to get Kiev. But then our guys they fought fought it back uh, in the night. Um, They just landed, um, like, uh, paratroopers landed there and they fought it back. Um, Alia,
0: Alia, we will let you get some rest and then... uh... Gather yourself together and, and, and hope that you uh, remain in safety. And uh, the best of wishes to your family. Alia Chandra, editor-in-chief of Euromaidan Press, uh, leaving Kiev overnight, uh, now in Lviv. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. Uh, just listening to that, Charles. I mean, it's when she said, you know, it's music lessons for the kids this time last week, and now we are refugees. It really brings it home, the speed with which this offensive has, has gripped Ukraine.
1: Yeah, I think what was what was very dramatic and very moving about Alia's words was how what's happening to her, her family, her relatives, her friends on a personal level, is actually translating into this incredible resolve to resist, um, and and the the passion that has gripped um, Ukraine and Ukrainians um, as they confront. Um, an incredibly complex technical onslaught from Russia. It was fascinating to hear her descriptions of what's happening to buildings being marked overnight so that missiles can hit them. So we're not just worried about aircraft in the sky. We're not just worried about tanks on the ground. We're not just worried about soldiers carrying rifles. We're thinking about an incredibly high-tech assault on high-rise buildings that contain civilians um, and, and to hear Alia's passion come through and, and, and the drama of of her displacement. Um that's um you know the sentiment that's going to fuel Ukraine's resistance.
0: Um I mean just listening to the the you know the the resolve um in the words of um Alia just then this determination and you know we will shoot down the Russians. We will resist to this. And we're just hearing um some news out of um out of Russia which is um the, the fact that I think it's been reported by, the, by by various outlets saying that President Zelensky has turned down an offer from the United States to help him evacuate—that's um, according to reports coming out of the United States. You know, I need ammunition, not a ride. That he's been posting images overnight online saying, "We are above ground. We are here. We are resolute," and it's an astonishing show of defiance because let's just think about it five years ago this man was a comic actor
1: that's right and 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 what has happened is that he has become the personification and the embodiment of the ukrainian resistance and of the ukrainian fight back Um, and he has handled um, the conflict so far masterfully, Um, and perhaps he's even using some of those artistic um, and and actors' skills in the way he's coming across. But what he's done is he's risen to the moment and he has, you know, when there is a rally around the flag effect in a country that is under attack, um, you also rally around leaders and and he has become that individual. He's not had an easy presidency. He is not a uniformly beloved man domestically or internationally. But in this moment, he has risen above that, um, and he is he is sort of floating atop um, a country of sentiment that that is one hundred percent behind him.
0: We now have the additional worry, though, of Vladimir Putin. Seeing a resistance, experiencing a resistance, um, the Russians have not released any numbers of their uh, ca- of their casualties on their side, and the Ukrainians are saying it's upwards of three thousand. The Russians, uh, unsurprisingly, probably never will release their numbers of casualties. But if Ukraine puts up a strong enough fight, the fear is is that Putin will resort to more drastic measures, which could have devastating effects on 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 people
1: so the issue here is that russia's stated goal in this invasion is regime change Uh, And, you know, there was a sort of mixed message and a veiled invitation to President Zelensky to come to Minsk in Belarus for negotiations, but that those could only take place if he surrendered. Um, And as you mentioned, um, the United States offered him safe exit out of Ukraine, and he said no to both of those offers. Uh, And Zelensky is in no mood for regime change. So if that doesn't happen as quickly or as easily as the Russians want or may have anticipated, then what happens next? And and that is, does Russia intensify its attacks on Ukraine? Does it intensify its attacks on Kiev? Does it try to go in for a surgical strike? On Zelensky himself. Zelensky has said that he has a target on his head. He's the number one target. He told leaders of the EU uh, during a a teleconference that that might be the last time that they see him. Uh, So, you know, if Russia is pursuing regime change and that's not coming, they're going to continue to pursue that to the end.
0: Um, Tell us about what the rest of the world's arsenal could be. Though at the moment it is entirely business related.
1: That's right. So we can... I think not just for the time being, but I think we can almost permanently rule out any military engagement in terms of planes in the sky or boots on the ground from NATO. That's just not going to happen. President Biden made that very clear in his remarks to the media yesterday. Um, So that's not going to happen. There will, however, uh, be a reasonably open spigot of money and of military hardware flowing into Ukraine from NATO and non-NATO countries. And then what the rest of the West is doing is imposing sanctions on Russia. Um, And that means that certain Russian companies, certain Russian banks, certain Russian individuals will essentially be excluded from the international business and political community and that any company. Doing business with any of those individuals is going to have to stop doing that. And the idea here will be to try to disconnect, at least for now, parts of the Russian economy from the global economic system.
0: Um, We're hearing reports coming in that that Vladimir Putin overnight um, has threatened Sweden and Finland with military consequences if they join NATO. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so what's happening? One of the odd outcomes of this invasion, and one of the things that we'll spend the next few decades analysing, is Putin must have known that if he did this, if he invaded Ukraine, that he would get the exact opposite reaction of what he had hoped for, and and so we assumed that there would be an orderly queue to join NATO once this invasion took place. And if that's the noises that we're hearing from Finland and Sweden, then that's going to be of incredible concern. Um, Finland, of course, has a reasonably ample border with Russia, um, and you know I don't think that that the Russian president would would, would even dream of attacking um, a NATO country. Um, but you can assume that this will lead to further escalations in tensions short of crossing the border into a NATO member.
0: The idea of uh, the word you just mentioned there, that it wouldn't dream of, um, one absolutely sincerely hopes that, this is a, that that's an accurate assessment of what could happen with Sweden and Finland. But there has been extensive coverage, and we're just looking at the papers today, about how the West didn't think that Vladimir Putin would dream of invading Ukraine. And I wonder how much of a balance needs to be struck here, Charles, that, yes, the foreign policy mistakes dating right back to 1989 are clear, but... No one could vouch for what was going to happen inside Vladimir Putin's mind and the fact that he now appears to have turned this into an ideological war as opposed to a shoring up Russia against an enemy.
1: You're absolutely right. So there has to be two important considerations here. There has to be a change in the calculation of the way the West looks at Putin's decision-making process, and if anyone thought prior to the invasion of Ukraine that there was some sort of rational process, some sort of spreadsheet of, of pluses and minuses or wins and losses um, that was being rationally tallied up in the mind of the Russian president, um, we can no longer assume that those sums are adding up the way that we might have assumed that they would. Um, When it comes to NATO, however, you know, there is a slightly different calculation to be made and that is that um, Putin may have estimated that he could have invaded Ukraine without a direct military pushback from NATO, but there is clear, open, clearly stated resolve from NATO that if there is you know, a toe across the border into a NATO country, that NATO will uniformly respond in keeping with Article 5, which is that an attack on one NATO country is an attack on all and elicits a response.
0: Charles, stay with us, um, because we can cross back over to Ukraine now. I'm joined by Yulia Marashevska, a Ukrainian anti-corruption activist and former civil servant. Good morning, Yulia. Hello. Um, We were under the impression that you were staying in Kiev, but you've Made a decision, haven't you, to leave? Tell us what's been happening to you in the last few hours.
4: So, we made a decision with my family that we have to leave. Uh, after the night we spent in the shelter, uh, we decided to leave uh, uh, yesterday evening as we spent uh, most of the night uh, in the road and we are heading to the western Ukraine. It's like huge lines on the border. Uh, but uh, I, I had to get my parents out of the city.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. While you are on the road, um, just tell us what you can see.
4: I see a line of cars, and currently we are in staying. We are not moving anywhere. The car, like the line, is endless. People are moving like families, kids, pets, elderly people to the uh, to the west.
0: And tell us where you are all heading. You say west to U- west of U- the west of Ukraine, but is this a temporary stop or is there a, a a hope that you can remain within the ukrainian border
4: yeah absolutely i want to uh, actually I hope to, to 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 be home very soon um just want to relocate uh, all of my family uh we all hope that like uh, maximum in a few weeks we will be back to kyiv so we are not moving further to the europe maximum it's uh, transcarpathia it's like uh, Uh, The uh, region of, uh, like the closest region to the border with the EU, but we are staying there. So we we booked uh, an apartment there, and we are not planning planning to to move uh, to cross the border. You
0: you say that the roads are jammed. I mean, how many people are now trying to leave Kiev? Are we looking at a mass exodus ahead of what is fully expected to be a a Russian attack on the capital in the in the next few hours?
4: that, that's a lot of people like thousands. like we, we i am not near Kiev. I'm I I I've already uh, further to the west but it's a, like a line which is uh, like hundreds of thousands of cars so it's all moving in one direction
0: there's reports coming out that there are the majority women and children being allowed to leave Ukraine but men are, st- are staying to fight i mean just just tell us what what is happening among your friends and family? Who Who is doing what? And um, these decisions that are being made that I think many would consider to be totally unimaginable.
4: Yeah, that's. I couldn't imagine like three days ago that uh, I would have to make a decision, like these decisions for my family to move or to stay, to take weapons or not to take weapons, and how to defend ourselves. Are we going to the bomb shelter or where are we going? So that's, that's just insane that we are going through. Because, like, five days ago, I was working on my economic growth project for uh, for United Nations, you know, writing the strategy. That's insane. So, uh, so um, some of my friends were confused, actually, uh, a lot. Um, some of them joined uh, this uh, defense unit. Um, most of the men who were confused, they got the weapons. Uh, some are blo- uh, blocked in Kiev, uh, because of uh, because of Russian invasion, uh, because of the... Uh, Russian soldiers into the city. So, uh, But uh, everyone is fighting strong. Like, uh, whoever I talk to, uh, they, they're holding up.
0: We're delighted to hear it. Yulia Marashevska, um, we wish you the safest of journeys. Thank you so much for joining us from on the road in Ukraine, out of the capital Kyiv, off to the west um Charles let's go back a little bit to um the world's response to this I mean we've been talking about sanctions last night we had this UN Security Council um vote we had uh obviously Russia in this astonishing position being leading the UN Security Council having to read out the declaration of a chem- condemnation of its own invasion of, of Ukraine um It unsurprisingly vetoed that vote, but we had China abstaining and many a people are saying this is a sign perhaps of the increased isolation of Russia on the world stage, because ordinarily one would have thought that China would actually side with Russia, wouldn't it?
1: Well, it's a complicated situation. So we have our our most recent images of the relationship between Russia and China is President Putin having traveled to the Beijing Winter Olympics and having discussed you know the long term friendship between Russia and China um, I think that Russia and China share a certain narrative about um, the United States and about Western hostility and about NATO and NATO enlargement and NATO aggression um, I, I don't think we can automatically assume that China will go lockstep into the future with Russia on this aggression let's remember that China generally speaking is quite a cautious very careful player in international relations. Um, They're watching what's happening in Russia very carefully, but I don't think we should make any assumptions that there will be unconditional or automatic support from China for Russia's activities in Ukraine.
0: Well, let's bring in uh, our Hong Kong bureau chief to tell us more about the reaction from that part of the world. James Chambers, good afternoon. Afternoon. Just listening to what Charles was saying then... um, Yes, as a shared narrative when it comes to NATO aggression, but the caution of China could prevent it from going lockstep, uh, as Charles describes it, um, with with Russia. What's the reaction in in where you are at the moment to the fact that China abstained from the UN Security Council declaration?
5: Yeah, it's very interesting. It's being uh, you know viewed as a, a win for the West, um, and I guess we have to look at what happened uh, in New York, uh, because in the Euro- UN Security Council they actually. Apparently had to water down the language um, from using words that were condemning uh, Rus- Russian action to deploring in order to try and win uh, that abstention from China. Um, so apparently the vote was delayed for a few hours, um, you know, with, with these kind of, uh, you know, kind of negotiations go- going on so that China would actually sit it out um, and, you know, the, the reason why the West is seeing this as a win is because the vote, where you know, it was eleven to fifteen. Eleven voted in in favour. Three, India, China, and the United Arab Emirates abstained, and obviously Russia vetoed. So uh, you know, in in Washington uh, and in London, they're you know portraying this as a an isolated uh, Russia, and even you know its its new best friend in Beijing. Um, you know, didn't didn't side um, didn't go alongside it. So that's why it's being seen as a win. Um, it's it's weird that, that abstaining uh, is a victory for 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 the West, uh, but it's showing how you know isolated Russia has become. And I, I agree I agree with Charles everything he said. Uh, just because you know Beijing is friendlier uh, with Russia these days, it's still got its own priorities, and it's not it's not going to go along with everything Putin wants.
0: Charles, is there anything you want to ask James?
5: James, we're watching the United Nations Security Council
1: in, in action. And, and I'm just sort of reminded that the, the United Nations Security Council was essentially designed to prevent from happening what's happening right now. Um, what's, what's your view on, on, on whether large multilateral international organizations are going to be of much assistance going forward?
5: Yes, that's right. I feel like everyone probably woke up and saw the news that uh, the UN Security Council basically is a bit impotent and will have, you know, basically moved on uh, to more important considerations. I think you know uh, China is a key actor in in all of this, but its role in this won't be uh, at the UN while all these this, uh these negotiations were taking place. At the UN, you know, uh, President Xi Jinping was having, you know, a call with uh, Putin and uh, he is, you know, he was urging uh, both sides to engage in in peaceful negotiations. Uh, now that, you know, he the president of China has come out uh, and said that um, you would expect uh, Mr. Putin uh, to need to listen. And you imagine that uh, China does want to be seen as some kind of, um, you know, kind of a broker for peace in this. It really wants to portray itself as a, a what it calls a, a responsible superpower um, while being a, a friend to all sides. So I do feel like, you know, China has a big role to play in this, but it won't be in the UN. And coming, you're looking at this from Asia, I guess it is, you know, it is a little disappointing to see countries like China and countries like India both abstain. We represent about, you know, two point seven billion people in the world, almost a third of the population. And even after this invasion, uh, the governments, uh, you know, c- couldn't uh, condemn what Russia has done.
0: Tell us a little bit about what China is doing to try to to manage the situation. I mean, you talked about Xi Jinping and uh, Vladimir Putin having conversations, and some are suggesting that Xi is possibly the only uh, person who could actually have Vladimir Putin's ear to a greater or lesser extent. But when you look at the rest of the world clamping down with sanctions... Is there a fear that China could actually offer a bit of a lifeline to Russia with financial support from Beijing's banks?
5: That's definitely the role that China has played in the past, and I imagine it will play in the uh, immediate future too. But it is, you know, attempting some quite impressive kind of diplomatic and, and verbal gymnastics. Uh, you know, it's trying to be a, a friend to, to both sides. Uh, and it's in, you know, encouraging Ukraine and Russia to, to negotiate. So it's not like Mr. C and Beijing are, you know, going along with everything that, uh, that Putin's Russia wants. Um, and it's interesting to see this story emerge on Friday out of the US, uh, something the New York Times are reporting that apparently the US warned Beijing back in December about Russia's plans to invade Ukraine. And. Wang Yi, the foreign minister, and the, the ambassador to the US, rubbish these claims, and apparently, according to, to US intelligence, they then pass that information on onto Russia. Um, and I guess there's this this opinion in Beijing and Moscow that the US is trying to kind of uh, sow some uh, kind of seeds in between these two, uh, you know, friends, uh, and try and break them apart. Um, so, you know, I guess Washington is trying to to drag uh, Beijing into this and force it. Uh, to take a side, uh, the US have said to China that it needs to be on the right side of history. But um, you know, going back to to what Charles said at the start, it's a very cautious uh, actor in all this. Um, it is trying to be a, a friend to everybody. I can see that uh, continuing in the near future. As you said, if if anyone has got Putin's ear, it is Mr. C. And we'll have to see if Mr. Putin is capable of listening.
0: James Chambers in our Hong Kong bureau. Thank you so much uh, for joining us on the line. I mean, just listening to that. I mean, that, that delicate diplomatic game that's being played by, uh, by played by Russia and China. We also have the issue of um Companies and business, which is obviously the, the lifeline that we were you know that we were talking about there about China could help Russia weather these sanctions when you're talking to uh, businesses because I mean let's explain a little bit about what your company does. Um, where does China fig- figure in all this, one? Because you're you're going to have companies who are saying, you know, what should I be doing in Ukraine? What should I be doing with my with my business interests in Russia? But how far does this these these questions travel?
1: That's right. Well, I I work for a specialist international risk consultancy, and and what I do most of the time is advise companies on how geopolitics can impact their business.
0: Your phone must have been rather busy this week.
1: <laughs> um, it's been a bit hot lately, and 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 it's getting a lot of time on the charger. Uh, so. You know, how, how fascinating these times are that we live in and it really is all change on the geopolitical front because you have to kind of think that if things hadn't gone the way they went in Afghanistan last year for the United States, perhaps President Putin might not have considered invading Ukraine and how deeply interconnected everything is and the fact that we're having to speak to a correspondent in Hong Kong about something that's happening in Kiev and then we're worrying about the impact on British business and so um, this is a rapidly evolving geopolitical environment. Um, we're not quite sure what the destination is, but business is very much on the same playing field. Business is in Ukraine. Business is in Russia, um, and you know also very interesting to point to the relationship between the United States and China, which will in part play out differently now as a result of what's happening in between those two countries, geographically, and and, and I suppose um, companies are under pressure; um, they are being held to account by their host nations, by their shareholders.
0: I mean, we can just think about BP this morning. The British government has told BP to get its interest out of Rosneft.
1: That's right, twenty so percent holding. That, that that's right. So, um, the United States and the European Union and the and the UK have yet to sanction. Rosneft, but Rosneft is a state-owned entity, um, and Rosneft is uh, Russia's largest oil company. So, um, it's going to become increasingly uncomfortable for businesses who are involved in strategic sectors in Russia. If you're investing in the Russian restaurant industry, um, you're probably safe for the time being. But if you're investing in strategic sectors in Russia, you're going to come under enormous public government, shareholder, stakeholder, activist, pressure now to revisit the wisdom of those investments.
0: Charles Hacker from Control Risks and friend of Monocle24. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Finally, let's hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, with his weekly column.
2: On Thursday, just before 4am in London, my phone started pinging with the news notifications. I looked at the screen. Russia's invasion of Ukraine had begun. I lay there in the dark, unease spreading with every update. Over in Los Angeles, our America's editor, Christopher Lord, was using the time difference with Europe to our advantage to line up Ukraine specialists and people in the country for Monocle's morning radio show out of London, The Globalist. Just after 6am, I phoned Bill from our digital team and told him to pull the Monocle Minute. The world had changed since it was filed, just a few hours before. It needed to be redone. And then, on the day barrelled, images flashing on the office's TV screens, news breaking on my phone. At midday, I walked down to the studios to listen to Andrew Muller hosting the briefing. I sat in the dark of the control room and listened as one guest after another set out all the potential, all bleak, scenarios that might unfold. Across the day, as the TV news carried live feeds of Jens Stoltenberg, Johnson or Biden, the volume would be ratcheted up and people would gather to hear what these fine men thought could be done. It sounded like the summer holiday in London might be cancelled for a few Russians. Perhaps your order would even have to wait a bit. But it was hard to imagine that Vladimir Putin was breaking a sweat over any of this chatter. Imbibing too much rolling news can often make you feel as though you might lose your footing. By the response engendered in us by the invasion of ukraine by a tyrant the attempt by russia to trample over an independent nation's prized democracy the squandering of life the inability of the west to respond is about much more than news anxiety this isn't going to be some painful regional reset such as the abandoning of afghanistan this year nor a brutal war such as syria's whose repercussions can be lived with because their impact, to be honest, is unlikely to change your day. No, this is an event that, as we are fast realising, resets the world order, puts in place existential threats for all of us. It's a moment when it's okay to fear, to even feel some despair. Yet, in the evening, me and our senior editor Nolan Giles took our new fashion editor, Natalie, for a drink. She started on Monday, and I'd barely said hello all week. We went to a nearby hotel and it was packed. Not even a space to stand at the bar, they said. We were about to leave when I spotted someone I know who works there and he kindly found us a perch. At the neighbouring tables, there were people from all over the world having a blast. Smartly dressed Emirati boys on one side of us, a group of partying French on the other. Was I getting this out of proportion? Was the world just as it had been a week, a month ago? Or had my neighbours been dosed up with so much anxiety over the past two years, the Ukraine was not going to spoil their mood now? Or did we all just have different techniques for dealing with this age of anxiety that we suddenly live in?
0: And my thanks to Andrew Tuck for that. Um, If you enjoyed that, then remind yourself to sign up for the Monocle Minute. Just go to our website and Andrew's column will appear in your inbox every Saturday morning. It is well worth a listen. Finally, on today's Monocle on Saturday, let's head back to Ukraine. Uh, We can hear from Volodymyr Yarmolenko, who's a philosopher, journalist and head of the English language podcast Ukraine World. Uh, Good morning, Volodymyr. Um, I trust you are safe.
6: Good morning. Thank you.
0: Um, Just tell us a little bit about um, how Ukrainians are adapting to a new reality, because for a very, very long time, you have had to live with the fact that there has been conflict on your territory, and it has been Russian.
6: Well, indeed, you're right that Ukrainians had a custom to live with war for eight years since 2014. But this war targeted only a small proportion of Ukrainian territory. Of course, many people went there as as soldiers, as volunteers. Many people lost their lives. Many people lost their friends. But now the war is everywhere. So we are looking at the news. And basically, it's difficult to say what what is the secure place? Because you can go to Lviv, for example, but in the western Ukraine, but today's news is that there was a landing assault, um, a Russian landing assault aiming to capture Lviv. There are, uh, there are fights, as you know, uh, big battles in, in Kiev, inside Kiev, the capital. There are also news of Russian uh, Russian uh, attack um, in the south, on Kherson, on Odessa. There are big battles in, in, the, in the east, the big battles in the north, so the war is everywhere, and uh, indeed we are living in this reality for only a third day, but it, it uh, the, the reality completely changed.
0: Um, tell us a little bit about how you explain to people, to your friends, to your family, to children, to parents, what is exactly going on, because we heard at the beginning uh, of the programme uh, of people fleeing Kiev who four days ago were organising music lessons for their kids.
6: Well, uh, normal people, of course, they don't want to live in a war. That's that's a normal situation. All people have their kids and uh, n- need to think about the future. Uh, we have lots of situations when part of the family have left uh, mothers or grandmothers with kids and part of the family has stayed in Kiev to protect it, to defend it. Um, I don't think that there is a need to explain anything to, to our to, to people around us, because everybody understands that Russia is a is a fascist neo fascist aggressive country, which is repeating what happened 100 years ago, when it cracked down Ukrainian independence, what happened in Europe in 1939, when Hitler just started World War Two. Um, how do we explain to our kids? Well, uh, I have three kids including little girls of five and three. And we were having a walk on the first day of invasion in, in Brovary, in Kiev suburb, and there was another missiles attack on Brovary. There was a huge explosion, so I took my kids to the underground. And suddenly I realised that the, the five-year-old was explaining to three-year-old what the war is. I don't know whether, how how she knew about it. I didn't tell her anything about it. But it's just in the air.
0: Tell us finally, I mean, you've written about how people should try to make sense of what Russia is doing at the moment. Many suggesting that, you know, many many resisting voices coming out of Russia um, saying this is not our war, this is Putin's war, but... um, a couple of days ago, you said that you know, think of Russia as a postmodern fascist state, a mix of Mussolini and Jean Baudrillard, who wrote a, a, a piece of work about 20 30 years ago called The, the, the Gulf War Never Happened. Um, explain to us, in as simple terms as possible, for those of us who are not philosophers, exactly what you mean by how we should be viewing Russia.
6: Well, when I talk about Russia as a fascist state, I mean that it is copied from the you know, all this Mussolini's or Hitler's. A version of society when there is only a state, a leader, a thura, a duce and no individuals, and no individual freedoms. And, uh, and the individual has to sacrifice him or herself for the state. This would happen. Now in Russia, this is a huge difference to Ukraine, where there is a democratic society, the vibrant democratic society, competition of views, discussions, and plurality. Why I'm I'm thinking it is postmodern because it just tries to replace the reality. What Putin is trying to say about Ukraine is just complete nightmare, because he's he's uh, saying that Ukrainians is a junta. I mean military junta, and he's calling the Ukrainian military to take over power. I mean to, to become a real junta. He's saying that Ukrainians are, are, are doing the genocide uh, in Donbas, in occupied by Russia, which Ukrainians don't have access to and he's is now bombing ukrainian cities so we have you, you you know that there are reports that missiles cruise missiles are hitting ukrainian kiev residential buildings can you imagine that in the 21st century so uh, it's it's all about that he's just uh, talking about ukrainian genocide as just to justify a genocide against ukrainians he's talking about so called ukrainian fascists to justify A a real neo fascist uh, crackdown of a democratic liberal process in Eastern Europe.
0: Volodymyr Yermelenko, yeah, thank you so much for joining us on the programme. And that's all we have time for today's episode of Monocle on Saturday. Uh, my thanks to James Chambers, Monocle's Hong Kong Bureau Chief, Elia Chandra, Editor-in-Chief of Euromaidan Press in Kiev, Volodymyr Yamelenko yeah, and all my other guests, and to Charles Hacker for being in the studio with us. That's it for Monocle on Saturday. For now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.